Well, what is up, everybody? It is great to be with you tonight. Super excited to be joining you uh, back home or here at Cedar Falls, wherever you might be. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ephesians 6. That's where we're going to be tonight, discussing these two topics, family and work. These two topics that, you know, when you think about it, uh, are incredibly similar, but in a lot of ways at times are like, like presented as at odds with one another. So to start things off, I got my computer here. Type in your favorite family vacation in the comment section if you're on Facebook, YouTube, whatever, uh, and then best summer job. Favorite family vacation, best summer job. So for sure, like I was trying to think through our family vacations. We went to Sedona, Arizona one time. That was awesome. We were doing like these four wheeler trails, super cool. And it might've just been like the landscape of that environment is so different than Iowa, um, which if you're not from Iowa, like Ernie Benoit, it's, it's, there's places that aren't as beautiful as here, which is hard to believe if you're from Iowa, like just the endless amounts of corn, gorgeous. Uh, best summer job for me was probably, I worked as a watermelon cutter at this Iowa State Fair for Beatty's Watermelon Stand. We like did smoked meats. I loved it. It was awesome. It was a great job. So we got, we got some Gulf Shores, Alabama, Sam Bierman. Okay. Oh, look at this. Hidden Acres Camp. That's great, Kenzie. Um, Tim Oldry Valley Fair Rides. All right. Tim is here. If you guys don't know Tim Oldry, he runs tech for us every single week, has made this possible in so many ways. So why don't you just show Tim some love here in the comment section because he's a beast and he needs some love. Ernie Benoit is just ha ha ha. This is great. Hey, I'm going to comment too. Uh, it's weird. I'm staring at myself on the screen as I'm in it. There's a delay. So that's weird too. Okay. They're coming in Canada, just Canada, which you know, that's weird, but hey, we'll take it. Canada, that's awesome. Well, this is great. So if you got your Bible, like I said, Ephesians 6 is where we're going to be at, talking about these two subjects. So like I said, I was trying to think through, like, what are the similarities between family and work? Like often we think, man, I work too much, therefore I don't have time with family or, or there's things going on in my family. So it distracts me from work. And these things are often put at odds with one another. But when you stop and think, there are a lot of similarities between these two spheres of our life. For one, the vast majority of your life, if you think about it, just like on a time, how much time you spend doing things, it, there's hardly anything that will come close to the amount of time that you spend in these two spheres. Like the amount of time that you'll spend in your life at work and the amount of time that you spend in your life with your family, there's hardly anything that comes close to those two things. Uh, another thing that I was thinking of that maybe is a result of how much time you spend at these things is family and work are two spheres that just have this unique ability to reveal what is true about us. Almost no other sphere in our life, like family and work, reveals who we really are. So I've been reading this book, Man in the Mirror by Pat Morley. And he says that who you are at home is who you are. And I'd add like who you are at your work is also who you are. Those, these two spheres have this ability to just reveal brokenness, sin, and what is really true of us. Like in these other spheres of life where we, maybe we only spend an hour a week with this club or with this friend group, like we have the ability to put up these masks, but then you get into your work environment where, where stress starts to build. There's a to-do list. There's people who annoy you and, and sin be, starts beginning to be exposed. 
Or then you go home for five weeks, for a five week longer time than you anticipated. And on this like fourth, fifth week of quarantine, you're beginning to see some of the brokenness and and what's really still hidden in your life. So for example, my freshman year of college, uh, I've shared this before, God really began getting a hold of my life. So I came to Iowa State, uh, got involved with Salt Company, and God began to really transform my life as I was understanding with more clarity who Jesus was, beginning to read the Bible for myself. God just began transforming my life in incredible ways. Well, I get home for summer break and every summer we did the same thing. We drove down as a family to Arkansas, El Dorado, Arkansas. It's where my grandparents are from. I love it. It's, it's a great place. Jay's Barbecue and Fish Fry, which is a great restaurant. Love it. Uh, but one of our favorite traditions when we'd go down to Arkansas was to visit Joe's Tire Shop. I'm dead serious. It was one of our favorite things, a tire shop. Uh, The fun thing about this tire shop is it's not just like some like auto mechanic random place. The way the Cheshires, that's the family, Joe Cheshire and then his son, Roger, the way they set it up is they had all these, all these like not lawn chairs, uh, rocking chairs in their lobby. And you go in and you get your cup of coffee and then you just sit in the rocking chairs. And it was literally like a TV show is unfolding before your eyes. In fact, they're friends with the Duck Dynasty people and they even shot a couple pilot episodes of a potential like show that they were trying to get up off the ground. And I think they could have done it, but for whatever reason, they didn't. So Joe's Tire Shop. And one of our favorite things that we do with the Cheshires is they would always invite us out to their family farm uh, to go four-wheeling. And so their front desk lady, uh, we called her Super Granny. That, I don't know her name. Her name was just Super Granny to us. Uh, she was a great grandma in her 60s. And she takes us on this four-wheeling expedition. I kid you not, a 60-year-old great-grandma takes me and my three brothers and dad on this four-wheeling expedition with the Cheshires. So we're going through all this stuff, and she is like the bravest, most hardcore grandma in the world. Super Granny was a fitting name. She's going through like these ditches and water trenches that we were like, we're afraid to go through. She has her great-grandson on her lap, and at one point is like throwing him to to his great-grandpa, like, get this kid off my lap so I can get out of here. Uh, One weird moment, the great-grandpa like, says snake, jumps up, grabs a pistol that we didn't even know he had, shoots the snake. It was a wild time. So we would go four-wheeling with the Cheshires and it was awesome. Some of them were less exciting than that. A lot of times it was just going over to their house and like they had this four-wheeler lap that we would do uh, around their property and stuff through the woods. So when we would go to their house, they had two four-wheelers and then the four of us brothers would just take turns doing laps on these. And we'd bring lawn chairs and books and stuff like that to like, while we were waiting our turn and stuff like that. So one particular time we go to the Cheshire's house and it's my turn to go on the four-wheeler. And we had done something like you get three laps on the four-wheeler where you're going around and then it's the next brother's turn. So I get on the four-wheeler, I do lap one, it's awesome. Lap two, awesome again. Lap three, awesome again. And my brother Saul is like counting. He knows that I've done three laps now. So he stands up and he's like waiting on the edge of the trail, ready to trade off. As I'm coming around, I like stand up, stick my tongue out at him. And I'm like, loser. And I just keep going for a fourth lap. And then I come around at the tail end of my fourth lap. I come up out of the woods, come around the trail. Saul's standing there like, what's going on? And I'm like, loser. Fifth lap, go pass him. See you later, loser. Enjoy your book. I'm on a four-wheeler. 
fifth lap come around. I think I might've even done a sixth lap and I finally get back, get off. So I was like, dude, you're such an idiot. Like what, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, whatever. Like it's, you've, you know, you four wheeled all the time. Like you, you're fine. He gets on the four wheeler and I walk over to the lawn chair, sit down. And one of the most pivotal moments in my relationships with my family happened in that moment. And here's what happened. My mom looks at me and she said, Stephen, let me tell you something. I was like, what mom? She's like, do you realize that when you're off at college, your brother Saul and your brother Seth and your brother Sam have said to me that they prefer when you're gone because life is easier when you're not around. And when she said that to me, it's burned in my memory. It was like a pile of bricks just lands on me. Because here I am having in my mind the most spiritual transformative season in my life. And I'm thinking that the ball is being moved down the field like a hundred yards. And I can have, I'm seeing all these ways that God is transforming my life. And then I show up for a summer vacation with my brothers and hear these words. Your brothers prefer when you're not here. And it wrecked me. And so I got up and I went on a super long walk by myself in the woods. As it's occurring to me that I am a rotten brother, that I've treated my brothers with so much selfishness. And in the midst of all that, I was just so blind to it. Here I am thinking that, that I am growing so much and, and I'm reading the Bible so much and, and God is so beautiful to me. But I get on this family vacation and I just act with selfishness and self-centeredness and don't give a care in the world for my family. Guys, Pat Morley, like he said, who you are when you're at home is who you are. And I'd add who you are when you're at work is who you are. These two spheres, work and family, have just this unique ability to bring out and expose what is true of us. At work, it's, it's so often insecurities or selfishness, or I don't want to make my, like, do more work than I have to. I don't want to pick up for that guy. It's like, oh, who's going to take my shift? It's like, I'm not taking your shift. I want Saturday night free. And it exposes just selfishness. Or in, in these family moments, when we get into a family vacation situation, we can be at college and we think that the ball has moved so far down the field, but then we get into our family environments and, and we're starting to have to shift how we do things and, and our schedule is different and we're being asked to do tasks that we haven't been asked to do since we're 13. And we're just, it, it exposes selfishness. And, and these two spheres that should be sources of so much life and meaning and satisfaction end up exposing brokenness in our life. Guys, it's like, it's like bags of tea. Like, no joke, it's like bags of tea. Like, when you take a bag of tea, it's like, what's in this? I have no idea. Is it lipped in black tea? I don't know. Maybe. Let's find out. How do you find out? You put it in hot water. You put the bag of tea in hot water, and what happens? What is true of that tea bag is exposed. What's true of the contents in that bag of tea is exposed by the hot water as it begins to diffuse. Because that is what these two spheres are like. They're two spheres that are hot water that expose who we really are. So here's the main question that I want you to wrestle with tonight. The one question I want you to seriously contemplate. What 
is the spheres of family and work revealing about me? What is the spheres of family and work revealing about who I am? What is it exposing? If Pat Morley's right in family and work, who we are at family and work is who we are, then who are we? Based on the last five weeks where some of you have started full-time jobs, some of you have spent more time with your family than you have in years, what is it exposing? What is the hot water of family and work exposing in your life? Guys, with that question, we're going to work through three other questions. So the first question is, why do these spheres expose what is true of us? The second question is, how do we flourish in these spheres of family and work? And then three, what is the hope in the midst of brokenness? As we're experiencing brokenness, what is our hope as we navigate family and work? So like I said, if you have a Bible, Ephesians 6. So look back there. What I actually want you to do is turn your attention first a couple paragraphs earlier to Ephesians 5.15. So in Ephesians 5.15, he says this, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. So from that verse, then he goes to verse 21 and he says, submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. So Paul, the apostle Paul in the letter to Ephesians sets up this scenario. He says, I want you to live as wise people, not as unwise people. And I want you to be uh, in a posture of submission to one another out of fear for Christ. Then he brings up three spheres of our life, marriage, family, and work. And when I say family, I know marriage and family, it's like the same thing, but family, parent, child, relationships, marriage. We're just going to work with those categories tonight. So we handled marriage a couple weeks ago, but tonight we're going to talk about family and work. And the question is, what about these spheres is so challenging? Why does it expose what is true of us? Well, if you go all the way back to the beginnings of your your Bible, where the Bible begins is God creates everything according to his design. And in this creation, he sets up several aspects of human life. He sets up marriage. He says, uh, the man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He institutes marriage. Then he says to the married couple, be fruitful and multiply, have kids, have a family. And then right after that in chapter one, he says, now go out and manage my created world. The created world that I just made, you are to develop and cultivate and care for it. Take what I created and and work it. So here's what happens. In the first pages, before any brokenness enters the world, you get three spheres of life set up. Marriage, parent-child relationships, and work. Which, pause, I think most of us intuitively, intuitively think that work was a result of the brokenness in our life. Like, right, so if you're going along in your Bible, Genesis 3 is when humanity rejects God and brokenness comes into the world. And I think most of us think work is a result of the curse. But what we find is actually work was a part of God's intended plan for humanity. Marriage was a part of God's intended plan for humanity. Children and families were a part of God's intended plan for humanity. We were created to be in these relationships, to be people who work and cultivate. In fact, even when you get to the end of time, God says that we are going to be co-heirs and co-rulers with Christ. I have no idea what this looks like, but I actually think that we will have jobs in heaven. 
Again, I have no idea what that looks like, but we're going to be ruling over the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're not just going to be like strumming hearts on clouds. I actually think we're going to have activity where we care for this new created world. And it's going to be awesome. Now, if that means like, like you're going to be working for some tech company in heaven, I have no idea. I don't know what the jobs are in heaven, but I bet you they're awesome. I can guarantee that. They're probably more awesome than like, you know, whatever, like cutting watermelon, as hard as that is to believe, how can you get better than the state fair where you're right next to the big yellow slide? I don't know, but it probably is true. They're probably awesome jobs in heaven. Enough on that. What you get is work and family and marriage established in the opening pages of your Bible. And these areas of life were supposed to be sources of deep meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in our life. Sources where we experience joy and security and stability. That's what they were supposed to be. But something went horribly wrong. Like I said, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, our first parents, reject God's design for their life and brokenness enters the world. And in, verse, in chapter three, as, as God is going through the consequences of brokenness, he lists three things in particular that will be affected by their rejection. Any guesses at what they are? This blew my mind this week. He says to the woman, two things are going to be affected. He says, Eve, you're going to bring children in this world through pain, through painful labor and child rearing is going to be very difficult. And then he says, the marriage relationship is going to be disintegrated because of the brokenness in this world. Then he turns to Adam and he says, the ground is cursed because of you. And because of your rejection and through painful and toilsome labor, you're going to eat of the fruit of the ground. Is that mind boggling? The three things that he says are going to be affected by the curse are marriage, bringing up children and work. So now thousands of years later, Paul writes this letter to, to the church in Ephesus to give them specific instructions on how to navigate these three spheres. Why do we experience challenge and why is sin exposed in these three areas? And in particularly family and work, it's because what was supposed to be a source of joy and delight and satisfaction and fulfillment has been ruined because of our rejection of God. And now we live in a broken society that is plagued by sin. And that sin has creeped into all of these spheres where what was once supposed to be a gift and experienced with joy and delight is now painful and laborious. All right. So how do we then flourish in these relationships? How do we experience flourishing in our family and our work? Well, Paul's going to give specific instructions and what he's going to do is he's going to set up uh, these two uh, paragraphs. Well, the first one's going to deal with family. The second one is going to deal with work. And in both of these, he's going to say, authority structure matters. And he's going to address those who are under authority and then those who are in authority. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, our ultimate flourishing happens when we first recognize the authority that God has in our life. And then both those under and in authority will be able to respond to human authority in these spheres appropriately. So first family, here's what he says, Ephesians 6, 1. He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord because this is right. 
honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So he starts with those who are under authority in the family relationship, children. So here's what he says. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In view of who God is, obey your parents. Why? Because this is right. There's just a rightness about children obeying parents. And then he goes on, he says, he brings up this commandment from the 10 commandments, the fifth one, honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise. And you're like, wait, I thought you just said it was the fifth one and he's saying it's the first commandment. Well, there's a couple ways to understand it. I think the one that makes the most sense is that it's the first commandment that has an attached specific promise with it. So it's not first in the order. It's not necessarily first in priority, but it's the first commandment that's given that has a specific promise. And what's that promise? He says, so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. All right. Did we just find, you know, the fountain of youth? No, we didn't. Sorry. It's not the fountain of youth. But here's the principle. In general, this is absolutely true. Those who posture themselves in a place where they consistently honor their parents, it goes well for them. There are for sure exceptions to that. Some of you are working so hard to honor your parents in life and it's not going well for you. But in general, those who consistently behave in a way that is honoring to parents, it goes well for you. That is a general principle. And long life is that is representative of that, of that blessing, that, that kind of just that uh, uh, category of, of well-being is represented in long life. So to understand this, this command, this directive to children, to those who are under authority in the family relationship, we have to understand the stages of the parent-child relationship. It is totally different what it looks like for my two-year-old daughter to obey me than it is for a 30-year-old man to obey his dad. The obedience relationship, it doesn't, it does, it's not the same. But what is consistent through all of life is this posture of honoring. In fact, you get Paul elsewhere in 1 Timothy 5, 8, commanding adult children to honor their parents and to take care of them as they're aging, even your aging grandparents. And he says, if you don't do that, if you don't take care of your aging parents and grandparents, you're worse than a non-believer. So there's clear commands to adult children to honor their parents for all of their life. But the obedience relationship shifts as the stages of the parent-child relationship shift. So guys, here's the question. As, as we have been in this family heavy time in our life, the last five weeks, you've probably spent a lot of time with your family. What's being exposed? Because who you are with your family is who you are. What's being exposed? Then he shifts to those who are in authority. He says, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Dads, don't stir up anger. Don't exasperate. Don't set up these situations that are, that are, you can't win. Don't exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction in the Lord. Build them up, nurture, care for them, develop them. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, there might be some other dads that logged on, but I know of four dads who are watching right now. Myself, Tim Oldry, Seth Barron, and Ernie Benoit. They're awesome. Those three dads are incredible and I'm learning so much from them all the time. So everybody else, you can hit mute on your computer right now, scroll Facebook, come back in a couple minutes because I'm literally just gonna talk to the four of us because the four of us need to hear some stuff. Okay, Tim, Seth, Ernie, here it is. 
for the four of us, we don't need, we can't stir up anger in our children, but we need to bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. I think if I'm honest with the three of you, like so often I'm afraid of like, if my kid doesn't turn out, uh, like, what does that say about me? Or on the other hand, I'm so afraid to like correct them. Like even Isla, like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Seth, but with Isla, like, you know, she does something and I probably should have like flicked her hand or something or communicated that it was bad. But I like, I'm afraid that if I like discipline her too much, she's not going to love me or she's going to, you know, like all of that. I don't know if the three of you have experienced that, but I, I experienced that tension where I'm like, man, I don't want to be overbearing, but I also don't want to be passive. So I've been thinking about that and I've been thinking about, uh, I'm sure the three of you have experienced this. Uh, When Isla first started walking, um, I just remember taking her out of her car seat and every time we would get out of her car seat, she'd say, dad, can I walk to the door? And it was just like, oh, this takes so much extra time to let you walk to the door. It'd be so much faster for me to walk to the door. But I'd say, yes. Okay. Like, yeah, Isla, you can walk to the door. And so I'd set her down on the ground. I'd hold her hand. And it was like, just so painful because she's slow. Like she's one and a half. She's slow. And she'd look at every piece of mulch and be like, oh, daddy, look at this piece of mulch. I'm like, ah, Isla, stop. And she'd trip and she'd stumble and she'd fall. Finally, we'd get to the door. And, you know, it's just such a great picture of like, how can I be a dad that doesn't overbear and isn't also passive? And it's only by remembering that I have a father that walks with me with a lot of patience and forbearance. I have a father who has held my hand through the mulch pile as I'm like looking at things that are distracting me that shouldn't be distracting me, as I'm tripping on things that I should be over tripping by now. And I have a father who's held my hand and showed me a lot of patience. And the only way, Ernie, you're gonna show patience and hold the hand of Jackson is if you first remember the patience God's shown you and Tim with Rania and Seth with Brant and me with Isla and Jack. The only way we're gonna be dads that walk with our kids through the times and show patience and shepherding and not being overbearing and not being passive is if we first remember that we have a dad who's held our hands through the mulch piles, through the distractions in life that so easily distract us. Guys, remembering who God is, is the only way that we can leverage our position as fathers for the good of our children. All right, unmute. Like, I don't know how to wave at you if you've muted your camera. So I'll just wave, like, should I jump? Okay, that, I don't know if that was weird. You'll have to tell me if that was weird. Um, the next group, this fear of work. Um, so here it is, verse five, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So before we dive into to how this applies to work, we first need to step back and just get a New Testament picture and understand what slavery during this time period looked like. Because I'd imagine a lot of you are like, wait, I didn't hear any instruction about like abolish the institution of slavery. Like where in the New Testament does this just say that this is atrocious and horrible? And those are like totally normal and good questions for you to have. So a couple things that we need to have in the back of our minds when we read texts in the New Testament about slavery is this. First, 
slavery during this time looked radically different than slavery as in modern day and slavery as it was practiced in the U.S. in the 1800s. Very different. Um, about a third of the population in the Roman Empire were in this slave class. And it ranged from people having horrible experiences that's like, oh yeah, this was bad and atrocious to people having actually really good lives where there was a lot of freedom and a lot of uh, personal ability to, to live the way they wanted. Uh, another consideration is that slavery during this day, a lot of them voluntarily chose slavery. To, to work in that occupation. Uh, there was a variety of reasons that they do it. Some, it was like uh, stability of, of a job. Others, they were, they were trying to get Roman citizenship. There are all sorts of reasons why some people voluntarily chose to work as slaves. In addition, Paul's purpose in this passage is not to give an assessment of what was culturally true in his day. What his purpose was, was to give instruction for what was culturally true in his day. And what we're going to find is actually the instructions that he gives when he tells masters that they are equal in Christ with slaves, that they are both under the same God. In other places, he, he tells masters to, to see their slaves as brothers in Christ, that those commands and instructions which actually laid the foundation for the unraveling of the slave industry, where guys like William Wilberforce in the 1800s would actually use the, these commands for brothers in Christ to actually dismantle and abolish slavery. So that, that's some of the considerations that we have to have in the back of our mind. Uh, what the New Testament does do is it does explicitly condemn the forcible enslavement of people against their will. So 1 Timothy 1.10, he says, enslavers, people who human traffic, that's wrong. So this is not a one-to-one -one correlation between our experience of work now and slavery then, but there are for sure some general principles that we can apply some mindsets to work as we look at this text. So first, those under, under authority, in this case, slaves are in our world employees. He says, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Guys, how can we have healthy work relationships as employees? It's first remembering that our ultimate uh, person we're accountable to is not our boss, but God. Why does that matter? Well, when we only consider if we're pleasing to our earthly boss, what ends up happening is we begin to view work as a very self-centered way. I only want to do enough work to make my boss happy and nothing more. And we begin to, to let selfishness be exposed in our life. But when we remember who our ultimate boss is, that we are working ultimately for God and for the sake of others, right? He says to serve others then even when there is no human recognition involved, we will work with excellence for the sake of others. Then he turns to masters and he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. When those who are in authority, remember first that their ultimate authority is God, then the human authority that they've received from him, they will leverage for the flourishing of others and not for their selfish gain. Not manipulating, not threatening, not, not taking advantage of people, but for the sake of people. 
Why? Because we have a God who didn't use his position of authority for his own sake, but for ours. So that's, that's what masters and, and slaves, employees, employers, when we know that the ultimate authority, the ultimate person that we're held accountable to is God, it will completely transform the way we approach work relationships. Lastly, guys, when we think about these two spheres, I know so many of you have stories of brokenness. And there's just this question of like, man, what hope is there when I consider the brokenness that's present in my family? Or when I ex have experienced the disappointments in work and in my employment or as an employer, how do, we, how do we handle that? What hope is there in that season? Because for some of you, when you think about family, it, it, when you think about your childhood, it was hard for you to even think of a good family vacation because there's so much pain involved. And if you were to tell us the, the, the ways that your parents have disappointed you and the ways that they've fallen utterly short of this, it would make us just sob with you. And there's others of you that have, have been treated poorly in your jobs and there's, they're filled with disappointments. And some of you are seniors and you're like, yeah, this whole work sphere, what it's revealing is I'm super nervous to go into work because I don't even have a job. It's like, God, are you going to provide for me? And these two spheres that should be sources of delight and joy and satisfaction are actually sources of pain and hurt and disappointment. I was saying to last, last night to Natalie again, it's like, man, I would hate for a day down the road for me to drop off my youngest child at college and to just be filled with disappointment over lost time and, and regret. Because what hope is there when we have pain in these spheres? What hope is there when, when your dad has left you disappointed? Because the hope is that we have a true father who looked at the brokenness that happened in Genesis 3, who looked at the brokenness that you've experienced, and in love sent his son to come to earth. And guys, God severed his relationship, his perfect relationship with his son, so that you could have a relationship with a father that would never abandon you. So that you could have a relationship with God that the, the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment that work should give you actually satisfies and fulfills. Guys, and when that is the anchor in your life, you'll begin to be able to move towards these spheres in a posture of serving for the sake of others in light of who God is and who you are in, in him. Guys, earlier in Ephesians 1, God says that he looked at us and he says, I wanted to adopt you as sons. How? Through the blood of Jesus. Guys, Jesus Christ came and died so that we could have a relationship with the Father that's never lost. On the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So that you can know that you'll have a Father that never abandons you. Guys, some of you feel so just disappointed by this family sphere. And you've been left and you've been alone and you feel like an orphan, even if you're not one. There's a God who said, I love you and I'm coming for you. Even if that means losing my own son so that I can have you as my daughter. 
That does so much for us. And until that's the anchor of your life, you're never going to be able to move and maneuver through these spheres in the way God intended for you. But when it is, it will finally put you in a posture where you can serve and love others in light of who God is. Let's pray. God, the sphere of family work does so often, um, so often it, it exposes pain and hurt and it doesn't bring the delight that you intended it for. And God, even those of us who have good jobs and good healthy families, often we still feel like, man, they're, they're wanting, they're, there's something lacking here. But God, I pray that we would have our hope anchored on the reality that you destroyed your family so that we could have a family that could never be threatened. And you abandoned your son so that we could have the, the, the knowledge that we would never be abandoned by you. And God, that you endured the cross for the joy set before you so that we could have joy because of the cross, a joy that we so long for in our work and in our vocations, but can only be found in you. And I pray that as that reality transforms us, that we would be people who pursue family and have healthy relationships, that we'd be dads who love our kids well and don't be overbearing or too passive and that we'd be children who honor our parents for our entire life, even if that means us sacrificing our desires and preferences. And God, that we'd be employees who don't work just for human recognition, but that we'd work even when we're not being watched for the sake of others. And God, that we'd be bosses and and employers who would leverage our position for the sake of others so that they flourish and not just our own manipulative and self-centered gain. God, we love you. Thank you for the hope that is in Jesus. Amen.